Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us this Palm Sunday morning, one week before Easter. We are working our way through the completion of the Gospel of Luke, and today we encounter the crowds one week after Jesus' triumphal entry, where they were once shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They now shout, crucify him, crucify him. Today we will study how Jesus reveals a contrasting kingdom to the will of men and those who seek to put Jesus to death. And we'll conclude by examining what was going through Jesus' mind as he went to the cross. Thanks for listening today as we, just like Jesus, look to place our hope in God alone. Do you remember where you were on September 11th? Remember that moment? Um, how about going back a little bit further? Do you remember where you were during the Challenger explosion? Do you remember that? Yeah, that's all dating myself a little bit here for some of you. But yeah, what, why is it we can recall almost the exact instance when these things occurred? And there may be many more other types of tragedies that you can think of. Boy, I remember exactly what I was doing when I heard the news. I think the reason is because when we encounter these types of events, they so position themselves against how the world is supposed to go. This isn't what it's supposed to be like. Plane's not supposed to fly into the building. Shuttle's not supposed to explode. That's not how the world is supposed to go. What about in your own life? Have you ever found yourself in the moment recognizing this isn't what life was supposed to be like. This isn't how it was supposed to go. For Jesus' followers, that's what this week, this particular day has meant for them. Thinking that their Messiah, the King, the Ruler, the One who is going to lead Israel into their glory is now arrested. and He's now going to stand trial. And, and this isn't what it was supposed to be like. And this isn't how it was supposed to go. And there is for them creeping in this sense of discouragement, in the, in the pit of their gut, this despair, this sorrow, the darkness is coming, the light is failing, hope is disappearing. And you and I, we live in that same world. There's a story I want to share with you as we continue here in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, when I was approximately my son's age. He's, he's nine, soon going to be ten. Um, my dad wanted to take me fishing with him on Lake Superior, which sounded fine to me. I mean, I enjoyed going fishing with my dad. All the, he, he knew all the spots on all the lakes, right? He could show you right that little sweet hole where you could pull up the walleye, whatever it is, crappies. He knew how to slay the fish, right? Some of you guys knew him, right? Give me an amen, right? Yeah. That's right. Well, I figured, you know, Lake Superior would be no different. So being, you know, just a boy, I went out there with him. Little did I know, Lake Superior is nothing like normal lakes. And uh, we went over to, to Marquette, and we got on. With his, uh, a buddy of his had, a, I think it was like a 26-foot boat. Uh, that's not terribly large. And as we kind of get out of the harbor and get out there, the waves, they start, they start a-coming. And up the boat goes and down the boat goes. And here's the thing on a boat. The only way you get off a boat is jumping off the boat. That's the only way you get off the boat. And as I'm out there, I suddenly realize that uh, this motion is starting to pay its toll on me, and I'm starting to get a little queasy. And so the first thought of your mind is you kind of look for a safe place to sit, you know, and just kind of get your bearings. And then after a while, you start to turn a little pale, and you start to get a little just queasy, right? And it's, um, 
things, things are starting to progress here, right? Things are starting to go from bad to worse. And you start to think, I may not make it. I'm, I might need to get, get out of here. And, and that sense of despair starts to set in, right? Because these waters are not still. These are troubled waters. Amen, right? The ups and the downs begin to pay their toll. And sure enough, soon I found myself hanging over the edge of the boat, letting my lunch go. And then uh, to the frustration of the true fishermen, they had to cart me back to shore. And like a sack of potatoes, just kind of roll me off the boat onto the dock. And I just laid there praising the Lord. Just laid there. Even when I got up to walk, you kind of do one of these, right? As you're, you're, you're just a little bit tipsy still. Uh, you know, the, these moments, they, they can be characterized in ways that are comical, but recognize how fear so quickly can, can fill that where confidence once was. And despair can quickly come where, where joy and excitement once were, because this isn't what life was supposed to look like. This isn't how it was supposed to go. And the, the waters that I'm in right now are not calm waters. I don't know where you're at today. I, I would venture to guess, though, that you have something in your life that is for you a challenge where God is asking you to trust Him and to place your hope not in your circumstances or what you thought it was going to be like, but rather to place your hope in the one who knows the answer. Uh, this morning's sermon is called Hope in the Lord. And our goal is to work through what is largely the story up to Jesus' crucifixion, death, and burial. It's in Luke chapter 23, and if you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to please take them out as we work through it together. We're going to attempt uh, two things this morning. I have two goals. My first goal is to, as we walk through the text, is to highlight this truth. Jesus comes to enter in a kingdom different than the kingdom of the world. That's the first goal, all right? I want us to recognize the difference between the kingdom that Jesus is bringing and the kingdom that men thought they had, all right? That, that's, that's the first goal. The second goal for this morning, and this will be a tough one, is to see if you and I might be able to discern what was going through the mind of Jesus. What was Jesus thinking about as he was walking to and being nailed to and hanging on the cross? What was going through his mind? Now, we saw last week that Jesus was fully capable, right? At any moment, to call down 10,000 angels. Remember that? He could have at any moment done away with all of this. But he chooses not to. Well, why? What, what was it that Jesus himself was working through in his spirit and in his inner man, in his, in his heart and in his mind, that caused him to continue to suffer and to hang on the cross? Because here's the, here's the idea. If we can understand what Jesus' motivation was, maybe that can help us. Maybe it can restructure how we think about the things that we go through in life. So those are the two goals this morning. Number one, we're going to try to identify the difference between the kingdoms. And then secondly, we're going to seek to show what Jesus was thinking about. Luke chapter 23. Actually, we're going to back up into chapter 22, just briefly, into verse 66. That's page 1638 in the Pew Bibles. And uh, we're going to do a little bit of reading today. So I invite you to follow along together as we look. Page... uh, 
chapter 22, verse 66. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you are right in saying I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. All right, this first, uh, this first panel, and we're going to look at six different panels uh, as we trace through the story. This first one is the interrogation before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is kind of the ruling council made up the, of the elders and these officials who controlled the religious aspect within Judaism. They have uh, incorrectly and unjustly brought Jesus before them to stand trial. They're already breaking their own protocols, their own rules, for you don't hold a meeting like this at night. You don't hold a meeting like this on the eve of Sabbath. You don't hold a meeting like this with the one who's accused where he doesn't have any witnesses on his defense. All of these and many more transgressions of their own law, they have broken to hold this interrogation. And so Jesus comes and he stands. And here the kingdom of men look to be in control, but who's in control? Jesus is still in control. I want you to pay attention to his answer. He says, if I tell you, you, won't, you will not even believe me. So he knows their response. He knows their hearts. I don't want you to think for a moment that Jesus himself is out of control in this situation. The kingdom of men think they rule, but really what we discover is that Jesus is the one who rules. For in the kingdom of God, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. Now we can see this plainly here in verse 70. They ask, are you then the Son of God? Uh, there, there are some folks who say that, well, Jesus never claimed to be the Christ. Jesus never, well, you, you seem to be missing Luke chapter 22 here. I mean, clear as day, Jesus says, you are right in saying that I am. Absolutely, Jesus claimed the title of Son of God. Though he may not have had spoken the words from his own lips, he claimed it as his own, for this is who he is. And there's a difference here between the kingdoms. The kingdom of man, who looks to be the ones who are in charge and in control, and the kingdom of God, where Jesus is the Christ. All right, let's look at the next panel, and now we pick up the story in chapter 23. Then the whole assembly arose, and they let him off to Pilate. Now, the reason they do this is because they want to kill him. And the Jews don't want to do this in a private stoning. They want a public spectacle. The problem is, the Jews have no jurisdiction for capital punishment. They don't have the ability to crucify anybody, but they know who does. It's the Romans. And so together, they say, and scheme, I know what we'll do. Let's take this guy to Caesar. And you know what? We'll, we'll spin the tail. We'll weave a, a, a web of deception to make sure Pilate sees it our way. Because you need to remember, the Jews and the Romans, they don't get along. Uh, the Romans really want nothing to do with all the religion of the Jewish people. The Jewish people despise the overlord uh, control that the Romans have. So they don't really get along. But I want you to watch the scheming nature of how these religious people come and try to persuade 
Pilate. So, verse 2. And they began to accuse him, saying, check this out. We have found this man subverting our nation. So at this point, Pilate would say, big deal. It's your nation. I don't care. You've got to remember, by the way, this is super early in the morning. Who likes being woken up early in the morning? Right? Oh, what are we doing here so early? Like, this is... Uh, I imagine Pilate here is already a little bit um, not wanting to have this meeting. So first of all, they say he opposes payment... Uh, he opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. Now, did Jesus ever do that? But what will that sound like to a Roman's ears? You, you recognize how this is spun? Uh, hold on a minute. I, I don't care if he's subverting you guys, but go back to that part again where he's not paying his taxes. Because I want to hear about that part. And if he's stirring up the crowd and there's people following him, <laughs> that's my job that's on the line because the guy above me in Rome is going to hear about that. The coffers are getting low. So, yeah, go on with this now. And look what else he says. And he claims to be a Christ, a what? A king. So, again, they're, they're working to craft this accusation in such a, such a way that will, it'll p- appeal to the ear of Pilate, the Roman. Because what's a Roman going to hear when they say, here's somebody else who's setting himself and his throne above Caesar? Now, Pilate can't ignore this anymore. Right? Now, Pilate's got to deal with this. Verse 3, so Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? This is awesome. Yes, it is as you say. You see, once again, Jesus is proven true, not by his own confession, but by those who are asking him the questions. He simply affirms it, claims it to be his own. Then Pilate announced to the chief priest and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee, has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if this man was a Galilean. So Pilate recognizes he has a way out in this situation. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod. That's a nice way of passing the buck, right? Look, I don't want to mess with this. It's early in the morning. I got plans. I was going fishing today. I don't know. But I'm going to send him to Herod. Herod can deal with him. So, verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. Do you see how vain Herod is? Herod just wants to be entertained. I heard about this guy. Yeah, Jesus. Okay, let's see if he can do a trick today. Right? And he, bring him in. Bring him in. Hey, Jesus, show us what you got. And, and Herod here is all interested in finding just entertainment. He's not interested in the truth. Again, he's not interested in learning. Verse 9, he, re- he plied him with many questions. Jesus gave him no answer. How hard must that have been? Right? Imagine you being Jesus there, creator of the universe, being asked these questions and just having not to speak up. For if you do, and if Jesus did a miracle, Herod, Herod would have probably said, oh, let's keep this guy. I like this guy, right? And Jesus would have avoided the cross. He still wouldn't have made his way to the cross if he said anything to Herod. But instead, what does Jesus do? doesn't say a word. 
Verse 10, the chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. See how vain they are? Look what they do. They dress him in an elegant robe. They send him back to Pilate. And that day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they'd been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people. So now, if you've been keeping track, we're on uh, trial number four here. right? So before the Sanhedrin. And in fact, if, if you go to Luke's Gospel, you'll, you'll recognize that was actually two trials. One at the house of Annas, and then another one for Caiaphas. So you've got... You've got two going on, and then you got Pilate, and then you go to Herod, and then you go back to Pilate. So this is really the fifth time Jesus has come to stand trial. Verse 14, and he said to them, you brought me this man as the one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence, and I find no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Pilate is really doing his dead level best here to avoid any part of the crucifixion of Jesus. And we know from another gospel account that Pilate's wife comes to him and says, you need to be careful with this man. I had a dream. I'm very troubled by this. Now, a Roman would take that seriously. And a Roman would find fear in that to say, I need to stay away from this. But more than that, Pilate really wanted to watch his own skin, watch his own back. Because if Pilate began to step out of line... The Jewish people could control him like a puppet by appealing to Caesar and saying, hey, this governor you sent us is not doing his job. And you got to remember, Romans during this time, they were really quick, like Alice in Wonderland, to say, off with his head, off with his head. That's how Rome worked. So Pilate here is trying to save his own neck by just trying to avoid the conflict. I'm just trying to avoid it. Pilate is actually on pretty thin ice himself. Verse 16, therefore, I will punish him and then release him. This uh, punishing is the flogging uh, that they would do to prisoners, to those who needed to be taught a lesson. They called it uh, 40 lashes minus one, and they would take a whip. They called it a cat of nine tails. It was filled with balls of lead and bits of bone so that when it hit your back, it not only beat it and bruised it, but then it cut in and lacerated such that it would tear you to shreds. Many of you have seen Mel Gibson's depiction of the Passion of the Christ, and I, frankly, in studying this, uh, believe that's a pretty fair depiction for what Jesus went through. Uh, We have good historical account to recognize the flogging as being so so severe, because many times when you were crucified, uh, you would hang on the cross for days. Uh, there, There were people who would hang there for days before they would finally die. In fact, in the story, I will recognize and, and, and get to it, the two thieves on either side, because Sabbath is coming, have to have their legs broken. When, when you're on the cross, the only way that you can breathe is by pushing up against the nail that's in your feet so you can draw more air into your lungs. And so that's how they would, that's how they would survive. But when the soldiers, after crushing the legs of that thief and crushing the legs of that thief when the soldiers reach Jesus they find that he's already he's already dead which is very rare that's a very rare thing to find within crucifixion again you would many times stay up there for days what could what might have happened to cause this man on the center cross so much trauma that he would die only after six hours 
And I believe it's this verse right here. Verse 16, I will punish him and then release him. I believe the flogging that Jesus took was so severe that he, he couldn't last but a matter of hours on the cross. With one voice they cried out, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. So Pilate's trying to release Jesus. And they say, we don't want him. We want the murderer, Barabbas. Verse 19 says, Barabbas had been thrown into prison after an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus. I'm really thankful for Luke's account here. And there's some historical accounts that say that even Pilate himself may have had a change of heart to come to faith. Who knows if that's true or not. But Luke, being a historian, is working to show us that Pilate was trying to release him. Pilate was saying, I find no governmental reason to crucify this man. But look what the crowd says in verse 21. Just a week after today. Remember Palm Sunday. What do they say? Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And just seven days later, what are they shouting? Verse 21. Crucify him. Crucify him. How very weak and fickle the human heart can be. To find that it does not hope in the Lord, but that the kingdom of men seeks to triumph over the kingdom of God. For a third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found, him, I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I will have him punished and then release him. A repetition there of verse 16 and finally verse 23. But with loud shouts, they insisted and demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant them their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. The one they asked for. And he surrendered Jesus to their, to their will. This second panel is the accusation before rulers. And we've, we've read it. We've seen it. He goes before the ruler of the state, right? Pilate. And then he goes to the governor of the local municipality, to Herod. And then he goes back again to Pilate. And what does he hear from those who are following him? Is there anyone by Jesus' side? Is there anyone there to vouch for him and say, no, I know this guy. But all together, in one harmony, the people of earth shout, crucify him, crucify him. There are some who think that the Jews are those that are guilty for the death of Jesus. But it's not the Jews. It's the Gentiles as well. For it was the Romans who put him to death. Such that whether you're Jew or Gentile, all of mankind is guilty for having, having killed the Son of God. How did, how did we get here? How did this happen? This isn't how it's supposed to look. Right? In the same way that the shuttle's not supposed to explode. The planes don't fly into buildings. How did this happen? How did we get here? In the kingdom of men, it seeks to prevail. But in the kingdom of God, look what? Jesus is king. He is not out of control. He is still ruling. Jesus himself controlling his responses and his actions. Because he knows this is what must happen. I want you to see once again from his own accord in verse 3. 23 verse 3. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And what does he say? Come on, what's he say? Yes, it is as you say. All right, let's look at the third panel. This is the Via Della Rosa as Jesus makes his way on the path of suffering. Verse 26. As they led him away, 
They seized Simon of Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who had mourned and wailed for him. Do you see the picture? I mean, this is a really gruesome scene right now. Jesus, unable to carry the cross himself, uh, Simon gets conscripted by the Romans. And again, you can't refuse the Romans. Carry this cross. And Simon picks it up. And with Jesus, they make their way down the path. And along the way, the entire time, you have this, this horde of women wailing and mourning and grieving. But look what Jesus does in verse 28. But Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. But weep for yourselves and for your children, for the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that have never bore and the breasts that have never nursed. And then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? And here on this third panel, I want you to see that the kingdom of God looks different than the kingdom of men. For the kingdom of men is punishing Jesus, right? And Jesus is the one that we're weeping for. But what does Jesus do? He turns and he comforts those that are seeking to mourn for him. Wanting him to, rec- he recognizes to them, look, it's going to be worse for you. I'm doing what I came here to do. Do you see the difference of the kingdoms? Do you see how they don't line up? Jesus himself is still in control. And he's still ministering to those who are coming around him. Let's look to the fourth panel. In verse 32, and now we get to the crucifixion. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him. Along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, look at this. Verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine and vinegar. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth today, you will be with me in paradise. In this fourth panel, we see the crucifixion. And in the kingdom of God, Jesus forgives. In the kingdom of men, they put him to death. But in the kingdom of God, he forgives. Not only that, but here, he even forgives one hanging next to him. It's amazing that the thief on the cross, recognizing the sign above Jesus' head as the king, he says, remember me, king. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And there at the very last second, this sinner, this rebellious thief, he finds himself welcomed and forgiven by God. You see, the kingdom of God looks different than the kingdom of our world. 
In the kingdom of our world, you, you punish the sinner, right? In the kingdom of our world, you, you eye for an eye and you get what you deserve. And, but in the kingdom of God, Jesus forgives. Did you see it from his lips in verse 34? Father, forgive them. Uh, the verb tense here in Greek is a, is a present tense, which means he's continually saying it. It's, called, it's in the iterative tense, meaning that he's saying it over and over and over. This isn't one time as he's being nailed that he says, Father, forgive them, but it's over and again and again. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. I'm reminded of the echo in my mind of Jesus speaking to his disciples where one of them asks, you know, if my brother keeps sinning against me, how many times do I need to forgive him? Seven? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. For as much as you can, you offer forgiveness. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. looks different than the kingdom of this world. Let's look at the fifth panel now. This is Jesus' death. Verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour. So that would be um, about noon. And darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. It's about three o'clock. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands. I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. For the fifth panel of Jesus' death, in the kingdom of God, Jesus dies. Jesus is not killed. Jesus dies. And even in the manner of his death, I want you to see that he is still speaking to those who are around him. For as Jesus dies on the cross, what's the result? But one of the soldiers there comes to faith in Jesus. Surely this man was righteous and didn't deserve to die. And it says, Luke records for us, all the people who watched this happen, they beat their breasts in sorrow. Now, you might not think this is what should happen in the kingdom of God, but it is, in fact, what must happen in the kingdom of God. And it's happened for you. It happened for me. Your sins deserve death. Do you remember what the rule was in the Garden of Eden? Do you remember what God said to Adam and Eve in the day that you eat of it? You will die. Because if you rebel against God, the wages of sin is death. Now, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus sin? Come on now. Did Jesus sin? But did Jesus die? Yes. His death, therefore, is one that can be placed on behalf of your sin because he didn't have any. This is the message of the good news of the gospel. All he asks is that you receive this gift, that you simply believe it, that you trust it in your heart to say, I claim the blood of Jesus for my righteousness, not anything that I can do. And God saves you on that account simply because in the kingdom of God, Jesus dies. All right, let's look at our last panel here. Verse 50 looking at Jesus' burial. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, 
who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea and was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. And then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, placed it in a tomb, cut in the rock, one which no one had yet been no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. And then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. But they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. This final panel of Jesus' burial sees that in the kingdom of God, we wait. We now reach the point very similarly to where they are at now. Jesus has died. Therefore, atonement for sin has been made. But they're still waiting for his resurrection. They're still waiting for the kingdom of God. Did you see it? Did you see it from Joseph of Arimathea? It's in verse 51. Look with me there once again. He had not consented to their decision or action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea and was what? Do you see? He was waiting. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. This is where we find ourselves because in the kingdom of God, we continue to wait. Now, this wraps up for me the first part of what I wanted to attempt to do this morning was to show the difference between the kingdoms and how Jesus comes to usher in a different kingdom. Our second goal, though, is to try to identify what was going through Jesus' heart and mind. And I think I got an idea what it was. The reason is because of what Jesus says as he's on the cross. In verse 46, if you look there with me, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Do you know that's a quotation from a psalm? It's a psalm that we've already heard this morning. And it's where I'd like to conclude the message today by asking you to turn back with me to Psalm 31. Because I believe Jesus, as he is going through the excruciating trial of Golgotha, of Calvary, that he is dwelling upon Psalm 31. I want to read it for you this morning again. But I want you to hear it from the perspective of Jesus on the cross. Psalm 31. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Free me from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. Look at verse 5. See what it says? Into your hands... I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. I hate those who cling to worthless idols. I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your love, for you saw my affliction and knew you knew my anguish of my soul. You've not handed me over to the enemy, but have set my feet in a spacious place. Be merciful to me, O Lord. Look at this from Jesus' perspective. Imagine this is what's going through his mind. Verse 9. For I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. My soul and my body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. Because of all my enemies, I am under contempt from all my neighbors. Do you see the picture? Do you see Jesus on the cross surrounded by the enemies? I'm in dread to my friends 
Where are Jesus' friends? The disciples have scattered. They're nowhere to be seen. Those who see me on the street flee from me. I'm forgotten by them as though I were dead. I've become like broken pottery. For I hear the slander of many. Do you hear the echo of the sound of the soldiers mocking him? You saved others, save yourself. There's terror on every side. They conspire against me, plot to take my life. Verse 14 and 15, I want to ask, if you are in the habit of writing in your Bible, you underline these. These are awesome right now. Look at this. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hands. How awesome is that? Come on, church. How awesome is that? My times are in your hands. Look, I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you are going through. I don't know the phone calls that you've received. Uh, the trips to the doctor that you've had, the trials of the life that you go through. But I know this, your times are in his hands. Amen? Amen. Your life, your soul, your spirit, just as Jesus prays, into your hands I commit my spirit. Listen here, Jesus has got some big hands. God has got some mighty hands. And your times, no matter what it is that you're facing, they're not in your hands. They're in his hands. Let's finish it up here. Verse 16. Let your face shine on your servants. Save me in your unfailing love. Let me not be put to shame, O Lord, for I have cried out to you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Lie silent in the grave. Let their lying lips be silenced. For with pride and contempt they speak arrogantly against the righteous. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you bestow in the sight of men on those who take refuge in you. In the shelter of your presence, you hide them from the intrigues of men. In your dwellings, you keep them safe from accusing tongues. Praise be to the Lord, for he showed his wonderful love to me when I was in a besieged city. In my alarm, look at verse 22. This is again Jesus on the cross. You find it in the other Gospels. Jesus cries out, my God, my God. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Why have you Forsaken me. Look at this in verse 22. In my alarm, I said, I am cut off from your sight. Yet you heard my cry for mercy when I called you for help. This is what I believe is going through Jesus' mind. I believe that he is remembering the truth of God's word. Now, I promise you this. What you are facing ain't near as bad as what Jesus went through. All right? But you need to claim this truth as well. Look how the psalm ends in verse 24. Be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. Be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. This is the call to you this Palm Sunday. Whatever it is you are facing, the challenge is that you will hand it over to God. I asked this question in the sermon notes with command and bold letters. Give it to God. The question for you is, what is it today? What is it that you're facing? What is it that just is more than you can bear? More than you can handle? What would cause you to cry out to God? You've got to give it over to Him. And here, just let me be a pastor for a minute up here because I want, I want you to know that until you do that, you're going to continue to struggle with it. This is God's loving kindness to you to keep you under the pressure of your own ability. Correction, inability. Until you 
release it to Him and give it to Him. He's going to continue to press you on that path until you find Him to be the source of your hope. Church, He is the source of your hope. I'd like to conclude uh, this morning with the words of the uh, immortal theologian Simon and Garfunkel. When you're weary and feeling small, when tears are in your eyes, I will dry them all. I'm on your side. Oh, when, when times get rough and friends can't be found, like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down, Jesus says. Like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. When you're down and out, when you're on the street, when evening falls so hard, I will comfort you. I'll take your part. Oh, when darkness comes and pain is all around, like a bridge over the troubled water, I will lay me down like a bridge over troubled water. I will lay me down. Let's pray.